Hello, listeners, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, where the Geek Show's podcast is dedicated to the good, the bad, and the inexplicable, the good, the bad, and the queen, one might say, of movies either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from hip-hop to country and western. I'm Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and critic for thegeekshow.co.uk, as well as Horrified, the British horror website. And I've been joined this week by... Uh, Mark Cunliffe. I'm also a reviewer at The Geek Show and We Are Cults. Uh, I've done a few podcasts like Talking Pictures. And I've also got a chapter in uh, Scarred for Life, Volume 2. Now... This week's film is a film which begins with Paul Weller singing Everything Has Its Ending, so it could scarcely be accused of excess optimism, and so it proves with Face, an early, indeed pre-Guy Ritchie, entry into the late 90s cycle of British gangster movies, starring Ray Winston, Robert Carlyle, Phil Davis, Lena Headey, and, justifying its positioning on this podcast, Damon Albarn, the brains behind Blur, Gorillaz, The Good, The Bad and The Queen, Rocket Juice and The Moon, and many other bands that I didn't make up. And yet, despite this, I feel quite a lot of this podcast will be taken up with talking about how great its director, Antonia Bird, was. And I must say, I feel absolutely no desire to slam the brakes on that. (laughs) Nope, me neither. (laughs) I think this is an interesting one, because this is the... Normally on pop screen, the director of a film is either a solid but anonymous journeyman or some brilliant shooting star of art house cinema. And you can see that even just looking at the ones that we've done together. You know, you are either a Claude Wattam or a Derek Jarman. I was just thinking that, yeah, or um, John Bowman as well. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This feels like the first time that we've had a director who is a proper auteur, but maybe needs a bit of advocating for yeah i think so yeah i think um even at the time i think uh she i remember one of the reviews for this um said that it was eastenders meets reservoir dogs and um it's basically just going off Antonia bird's background uh, she did an infamous episode of eastenders it was a two-hander between um leslie grantham and uh anita dobson Yes, yeah. Uh, so, but she took that um, review. I mean, it was it was clearly a review that was meant to damn, I think. But she mm. took it with, yeah, fair enough. That's that's exactly what <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs> and I, think, and I have, I'd be glad to agree. I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with being involved with shows like EastEnders or Casualty, the other British drama stalwart that she was a director for in its early Yes, days. she was in the very early series, yes. There's yeah. nothing wrong with being involved with them, particularly at the point that she was, which was very much at their origin point, wasn't it? Yeah, before, I mean, the soaps, Casualty, I mean, I've my Scarred for Life chapter is about Casualty, so I could talk for hours about that. <laughs> but <laughs> Casualty, when it started, was a medical drama. But it's a soap now, really. But EastEnders was was always a soap. But that didn't mean that it had to be what it's gone on to become. Uh, the very early sort of inception of both series were very much uh, political, uh, dealing in the nitty-gritty of life, which um, I don't think happens in in many shows now, certainly not those two. 
Yeah, EastEnders was one of those efforts that happens every now and then on British TV to try and create what I guess you'd call a holistically good soap. Like, could you do popular drama that gets churned out, you know, uh, three nights a week or whatever, and have it be something that means something and honestly observes the communities it's about? And the answer, as with Brookside, its other 80s soap stable made, is usually... Yes, to a point. To a point, yeah. Before you start chasing your own tail, or rather chasing the ratings, really. Yeah. Um, and trying to copy or emulate where other serials have gone. I mean, I suppose Coronation Street's your you biggie, isn't it? That's the template that everything's set by. That yeah. Before um, EastEnders and Brookside, that had already been running for, what, 30 years, 20-odd mm. years? Yes. Um, so by that point they are getting slightly more far-fetched and away from their roots. And it's only, and when you look at EastEnders and Brookside, they had considerably less time to, uh, you know, disappear from the moorings a little into mm-hmm. the realms of fantasy than, than Coronation Street, simply because they had to keep up with what uh, the changing audience's expectations were of, of that type of show, I think. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing, we're, we're not going to make this whole podcast about British soap operas, listeners. Don't worry about that. But, <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, the other thing is that when Coronation Street has sort of moved away from its roots, it's tended to fall back on a sort of cosy, Mancunian kind of humour, where there's EastEnders and Brookside, because they were positioned as grittier things, when they moved away from their roots, they became more sensationalist in a way that quickly kind of tipped over to kitsch. And I think that's yeah. why Coronation Street has always been operating from a position of strength when it comes to the British soaps. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you look at EastEnders and it seems to me, I mean, I, I've not watched it for years. I've, I always say that I, I last watched it when Den died the second time, <laughs> which for anybody who isn't familiar with, with EastEnders and wants to know why we're talking about it being sensational, the fact that a character can die twice in it says an awful lot, really, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. I mean, I, I don't blink at that sort of thing when it happens in one of the Marvel Avengers movies, but in, in a film about working-class EastEnd life, it's a bit much. <laughs> Just a bit. But it seems to be that there's a murder every week, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and so it's strange that a show like EastEnders can be accepted as it being a murder every week. But when somebody like Antonio Bird does a film like Face, which shows uh, a kind of heist movie that one would normally see played out in Detroit, Chicago, New York, and audiences will lap it up over here. But when it's set in... Streatham or uh, Highgate or whatever on home turf. For some reason, we 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 blanch at it and sort of say, "Oh, well, that's a bit silly." Well, why is it a bit silly? But yet, you'll happily accept a murder every week on EastEnders. It's very weird, isn't it? And particularly in light of things like when the Hatton Garden robbery happened a few years back, absolutely everyone's first reaction was they should make a movie out of this. And I think they made about 70 movies out God, of it yeah. in the end. Yeah. Every, and surprisingly, I don't... Oh, yes. No, I think I was going to say surprisingly, is there anybody in this film who's been in those? But there hasn't the Ray Winston. Yes. I think Ray Winston's the only one to, uh, to have appeared in it. In, a, a in King of Thieves, wasn't King of it? Thieves, the, yeah, the James that's... Marsh one. Yeah. 
that's probably the second best one I've seen. I think the 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 one that stuck with me more was the ITV miniseries of it. That um, was Jeff Pulp, was just, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think yeah. it was just called Hatton Garden, wasn't it? That yeah. was um, that was a little bit better. <laughs> King of Thieves was very much positioned as the kind of blue chip movie star one, if memory serves. Yes, yeah, that's that's got the starry names in it and that, but it's it's not pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I'd give it second. I'd give it second best position, really. Well, uh, there's a dreadful the... one with Larry Lamb and Phil Daniels, which uh, <laughs> is one to avoid completely. That's absolutely hopeless. It's funny, isn't it? Because we're talking about this, and it's very easy to link these names back in. I mean, Phil Daniels, of course, did the vocals on Park Life by Blur. That yeah, you know, yeah. there were all these little tie-ins because I think we are dealing with uh, uh, the aftermath of a kind of British movie scene of the kind that you don't get very often in this country. And I think in order to explain why Face stands out as a piece of filmmaking, we have to talk about that turn of the millennium, early Blair Eva kind of wave of gangster films that came out in the aftermath of Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. A film I hate, actually. Yeah, I do too. I actually, I was thinking about my feelings towards Guy Ritchie and I was trying to work out, is it just because he's like the ultimate class tourist? And it's, well, Mm. I do kind of hate him for that. But I remember a while back, I I was wondering if I was starting to mellow because I kind of enjoyed his Sherlock Holmes movies. You know, I think- Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, yeah. They've got a bit of that, whoa, geezer stuff around the edges, but they're very, they're very palatable. They're very watchable. And I thought, okay, is that just because I like Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law? Or is it because I I actually should reassess Guy Ritchie? Uh, So I watched his version of The Man from Uncle and I thought it was shocking. Absolutely mm, terrible shit. film. Yeah. Terrible, terrible film. Yeah. In a way, those type of films, you wonder how people work again. Because I mean, he he did that, and then he did he followed it up with King Arthur, which is <laughs> atrocious. I mean, if you think Man from Uncle's bad, my God, what a stinker that is! That film it is god awful. At the point where I mean, and it's just full of. We will talk about face in a minute, listeners. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we will. But <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest flaws in uh, storytelling happens in that King Arthur film. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned King Arthur, and the first thing most people tend to think about is getting the sword from the stone. That's a pivotal moment in the King Arthur mythology. Of course. And Richie utterly muffs it by putting David Beckham in that scene. <laughs> So what should be a huge, iconic scene for a film is spent with people going, is that David Beckham? Yeah. <laughs> but you see, these, these films cannot escape the gravitational pull of the late 90s. They cannot escape this notion of what was considered cool at that very specific point. And this is, I think, where the whole thing ties together in that part of what was considered cool was a sort of nostalgic vision of 1960s gangsterism and you can see that in it's all over Richie's films that's what most of them are directly about but it's also part of why something like EastEnders goes off the rails because if you're making a film about the working class EastEnders 
I mean, logic dictates at some point that you should be dealing with quite a lot of stories about immigration and second-generation families. And what EastEnders has a bit of that. It's, you know, it took a long time to get on board with that, but mostly it is about Cockney criminals, which yeah, yeah. Is, is I think just a ridiculously um, outdated fantasy. Yeah, very much so. Going back to um, what we were saying earlier, the very early days of Antonio Bird directing and, mm. and, and the like, there was a more realistic effort to do that, uh, to actually show life for um, immigrants yes, or yeah. second generation immigrants. Um, I remember one scene with a guy uh, who used to run the the shop in EastEnders and he was an Asian and his Asian wife and they were constantly referred to as, well, you're not from round here, you're not from round here. And he, get, he gets drunk in the pub and he says, I was born within the sound of bow bells, you know, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is the, the traditional Cockney thing, isn't it? But yeah, because he's he's got a different colour skin to everybody else, and he's got a an Asian name. They're always going to be the outsider in the uh, in the, in the community. But it seemed to me that around the turn of the millennium, as Britain itself was becoming more diverse, things like EastEnders, things like these gangster movies seem to become whiter and whiter because they're yeah. dealing with this kind of nostalgic vision of London as it was under the Craze and the Richardsons. Yeah, well, it's the it's the second wave of Cool Britannia, isn't it, that, that yeah. Blur sort of uh, certainly had an architect's uh, hand in. Um, mm. And you can see it a little bit in this film in the sense of uh, the casting of Damon Albarn. Uh, yeah. which is obviously the reason why we're talking about it, in the sense that, that um, almost like the 60s, you're seeing a pop star being given a role, and not just given a role in any type of film, but given a role in a gangster film, yeah. which 10 years earlier, perhaps, uh, with 10 years up earlier than Face, uh, you'd seen Phil Collins do that in yeah. Buster. So there was, a, there was an easy crossover between um, pop stars, rock stars, playing gangsters it's the whole working class ethos thing of how how do you escape the working class well you either become a, a rock star or you become a criminal or yeah. you know you might be able to become a footballer or something like that so a lot of uh, musicians do tend to play gangsters in films don't they um yeah performance so collins in buster yeah. performance Mick Jagger, um roger daltrey and mcvicker hmm. um even tommy Steele in where's jack which was about yes. jack shepherd the uh the highway man you know so that that is a is a is a great tradition in, in british cinema um and there is a bit of that where we'll tap into this second wave of uh england swing like a pendulum do and all that kind of you know that yeah. cool britannia ethos that blur was uh was trying to summon up some enthusiasm for with the casting of damon Albarn. Yeah, definitely. And um, one of the things that I think has always marked out Damon Albarn's career is that even at his worst, and his career has had peaks and troughs, I think he would be the first to admit that, but even when he's in the doldrums, he is always operating at a level that is a bit smarter than he needs to be. And so I think if you went round film financiers in mid-90s London and said, we're making a gangster movie with the guy from Blur, you could easily have made a Buster or a McVicker. But he doesn't yeah. do that in this movie, does he? No, and it's interesting um, to wonder what the motivation was for uh, to cast him, really, because um, although it's very easy to say this is a Brit prop 
gangster movie. It's nothing of the sort, really. Mm. Um, it's, it's, I mean, as Antonio Bird says as well, it's very much a film about what happened in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, it's a very, it's, it's, it's filmed in 97. It's very contemporary for 1997, but it's primarily a film about the actual, the way that the working class got shafted in the 80s, really. Um, and it, 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 it's seen through primarily through Robert Carlyle's character, which is Ray, uh, a socialist turned bank robber, mm. you know, uh, yeah. because it's, it's that idea of you, if you're going to call me the, you know, it's the, it's the Thatcher thing, isn't it? If you're going to call me the enemy within, if you're going to rob me of my livelihood, I'm going to hit you where it yeah. hurts and I'm going to go and rob banks. You know, I'd, I'd rather be home for a sheep than a lamb kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it's very much a film about what happened in the previous decade. So it's strange that it has got that hanging onto a Britpop coattail by casting Albarn. But I think Antonia Bird was savvy enough to see something in Damon Albarn um, because she, she carried on working with him. He did the score for Ravenous after this. Ravenous, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I've got to say, I think he's good in this. You know, I, think I was going to say, he could, have, yeah. he could have done more, really. It's interesting that he sort of, he tried it and then went, mm. that's it, I don't know. But he's very good in it. I mean, I've, I've got a book here, um, Britpop Cinema by ah. Matt Glasby. Yeah. And there is a bit about Face in it where the author spoke to uh, Phil Davis. Yeah. And um, I'll just try and read it. Yeah. Phil Davis says, Damon was lovely. His band were at their peak then, hugely famous, but he was very humble. He's a very intelligent man, Damon, so he was watching very carefully what was going on and stepping very carefully through the minefield of being an actor for the first time. Mm. There were a couple of touchy moments. When he first joined us, we did a bit of improvisation. He hadn't done that sort of thing before, and my character, Julian, bitterly resented him being there, this young kid. I was very hostile to him in this improvisation, and poor Damon didn't like it. He wasn't used to people he was working with insulting him and treating him with utter disdain. We had to have a little chat afterwards with me assuring him that this was Julian not liking his character, not Phil not liking Damon. It's an easy mistake to make. Um, he's, he's out of his comfort zone, clearly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people like Phil Davis, they come from the Mike Lee school, so it's very mm. much knowing your character inside out. And this character doesn't like this young kid who is pulls apart from him and pulls apart from the rest of the team as well. Um, I think Bird says in the audio commentary, he's sort of like representative of a new criminal that's coming into, into the scene that is purely money, money motivated. Yeah. Uh, rather than the old school 70s blaggers who were always saying, oh, one last job, one last job. I mean, yeah. It's very telling that he's the first person that goes to um, Robert Carlyle, I think, in the bar after the blag and say, oh, I've, there's this job lined up. Yes, that's like, oh, true. Don't do it. You know, I, yeah. I've been in your shoes. Don't do it kind of thing. Well, Bird gets a fabulous piece of having a cake and eating it when uh, Allbarn's character, Jason, is introduced because he walks across the road with a then very new Sony Discman in his ears, just yeah, casually yeah. brushing past all the policemen um, with London calling on the soundtrack. And then as soon as he gets into the car, Phil Davis goes, who's this little prick in the yacht? <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. <laughs> And then you wonder, then you wonder why you got a bit touchy in the, in the rehearsal scenes. 
I mean, Phil Davis, for all you say, he comes from that Mike Lee background and he was in Quadrophenia, of course, which we've done on this show. He gets a lot of these gangster roles because he has one of the great British gangster voices. Everything he says sounds like a death threat. Where's my fucking money? Yeah. <laughs> which you, you must say about 20 times in this film. <laughs> yes. Where's my fucking money? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I like the idea that, like you say, London Collins on the on the radio, Damon sort of casually walking across the street past the uh, the, cops. the police who were there for the it's for a protest, isn't it? It's for um, a protest about Kurdistan, which I thought was interesting because I, I I was trying to work out why I thought the generic like protest scene in a movie made around this time would be and i thought it would probably be cnd right people mm. know what that is and after the cold war it's not a controversial issue so you can just show them with their placards and no one will care the fact that it is uh freedom for kurdistan i think shows a degree of investment in the politics that yeah. you know tips you off that those little bits with Robert Carlyle's character aren't just grace notes, they're actually the heart of the film. This is it, I, I want to touch upon that in a second, but I just want to quickly add that, like I say, he gets in the car, he's got the headphones on, but it's dance music he's listening to, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, that's an interesting twist, isn't it? Because you think, well, we got the Blur frontman. Not only does he not provide anything on the score at all, no. which people would expect, and I think it was a conscious decision not to ask him to do the score for this one because people would think you've only you've only cast him in it because you're getting the score as well. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that immediately nixes it. It's basically saying we want him because we think he can act. Mm. Um, but then to not have him being a sort of guitar guitar sort of um you know yeah. into guitar music is very interesting and at the risk of taking you even further away from what you want to say next right. it, it sort of comes <laughs> at an interesting time in blur's history really because phil davis has remarked the Alban wasn't used to being insulted is quite funny considering that Blur were going through their most fractious period yeah yeah I suppose so yeah I mean but then I think he's quite sensitive, Damon, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's quite a sensitive soul. The whole um, Blur Oasis uh, uh, mm. fracas, for want of a better word. Yeah. Um, you always feel that he got a bit swept away by what management and marketing were sort of suggesting would, would work rather than just mm. plowing his own furrow, keeping his head down and letting the music speak for itself. Definitely. And I think yeah. you can view this film the, the way that it makes more sense as like in terms of why Orban did it, uh, is it is part of a, a sort of battery of options he was keeping open that, you know, he had Blur, the self-titled Blur album about to be released, which was a huge hit. It had Song 2 and Beetlebum and a lot of the other, you know, a lot of their other most famous songs on it. But that was a big risk. It didn't sound like anything they'd done before. So I suspect there was a level of, well, if that doesn't work, maybe, you know, this other side to my career I could look at a bit more. Yeah, it's interesting. Nothing it, seemed yeah. certain with Blur at that time. They could very easily have split up. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, actually, but that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it, it's, like you say, here's at that interesting time because people would look at this, they go, oh, it's a Britpop gangster movie. But yeah. He's, 
it's not we're not doing part life here or anything like that you know yeah, yeah. I, I say the band themselves weren't doing part life at that point either mm, so yeah it's quite it's quite an interesting crossroads i suppose yeah but i love the the line where he i think um Stephen Waddington's character says something like what are you listening to and he's, he's saying dance music or or what kind of things are you into and he says eh, it's just something that stops you from thinking now yeah to get a musician <laughs> a very careful musician just to suddenly sort of dismiss his musical taste in such a way I think is quite a clever little uh, little in joke and there's a lot of dance music on the soundtrack and it's used very well I remember I was watching it and thinking uh Indeed, yes, <laughs> available at all good record shops, probably. Probably not now. <laughs> probably no. not now, no. <laughs> but I, I did think that the fact that the Americans uh, seemed to think that dance music was invented in like about 2012 mm. means that we were robbed of a lot of that generation of techno artists on film soundtracks. And it's a shame because their music often does sound really cinematic and the two songs by fluke on, fluke yeah yeah fantastic they work really well in the film yeah. and it's quite it, it, it's 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 a very choice and assured hand that bird has in the fact that she will play that and it mm. automatically gets the adrenaline pumping kind of thing for like the big action scenes mm. um but then she knows when to just cut it completely and just focus on the silence which adds so much tension Whereas you, you see your average American gangster sort of heist movie and they sometimes want to just, it's like wall-to-wall carpet of, of music, isn't it? Yeah, you yeah. Just, it just drowns everything else out because you think this is the action scene. We must have music on it now. And it, sometimes you just need the silence to just ratchet up the tension, which I think some films don't always do. I think part of when British gangster movies work, I think part of what makes them strong is that they are quite invested in silence. You know, it's the pint of inheritance, isn't it? It's the definitely knowing definitely, that a yeah. menacing pause is as important as the actual dialogue. I mean, I mean the, it, the only one of this cycle that seems to have had much of a lasting effect is Sexy Beast, which is full of ominous silences. Yeah. Yeah, and again, Ray Winston again, though, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, back when Ray Winston actually acted rather than just did better. as a floating head uh, telling you to gamble on sporting events. Yes. I mean, I used to love Ray Winston. I remember I, I watched him in a film, I think it was a TV movie about, yeah. I can't remember what it was called now, but it's, uh, I think it might have been called Our Boy. And uh, it was about his son getting knocked over. Yeah, and he's incredible in it. Absolutely, I, I, I thought if this is acting, what have I been watching beforehand? Completely, because it was just mesmerising. There's a bit where there's a guy comes up him and he just sort of like throws him with one hand across the room, kind of thing. Yeah, and he's just pacing around. It's like a bull in a in a really tightly constricted area, and you think, God, what have I been watching before this? And then he's, but he very quickly became a shadow of that kind of power, really, a stereotype, which, um, again, yeah. maybe comes from that Guy Ritchie wave of stuff where you mm. don't really have to, you don't have to put much effort in. You just rely on your cultural baggage, really. 
Yeah, and it's it's a shame because I think he absolutely is still capable of that. I mean, I remember watching him in uh, John Hillcoat's film, The Proposition, where he's, I mean, yes. that is a very unusual film for Ray Winston to turn in for a start, but he's cast yeah. wildly against type. You know, he's the solid family man police officer trying to bring criminals to justice in that. And he's yeah. terrific. He's so good yeah. in it. Yeah, it is a shame, really. Um, but, I mean, I, I could point to films like this in the 90s where you think he's really good. I mean, he's very good in this. Yeah. Um, even though he's, he's wearing a Dalek T-shirt for a lot of the film. <laughs> well, this is another slightly against type thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's very easy to look at uh, Dave, his character here, and think, oh, yeah, classic Ray Winston stuff. He's a gangster. He do, pulls off a heist. He collapses in the way that heists usually do, with everyone suspecting anything else. You know, he strangles a few people and carries around a shooter, but he's not the kind of gangster that I think people would increasingly call on him to portray. He's quite nervous and uncertain, and he spends quite a lot of the movie's biggest shootouts, you know, vomiting and yeah. complaining that he can't do this. Exactly, very cowering. So it's Phil Davis who gets what you would now imagine to be the Ray Winston role, isn't it? Definitely. He is yeah. the, uh, the balls to the wall, kick at anything type in this film, isn't it? Yeah. Which is much more pleasing because Phil Davis is much shorter in stature. Yeah. And it just adds certain topsy-turviness to the film really uh, but mm. yeah he, he's he is a character who is he's comfortable with what he's achieved mm. but he's aware that it could slip away at any moment and I don't know how much we're going to give away on the plot really is to work because there's a lot of twists and turns and it is a bit of a who who done it yeah, sort of plot yeah. This, isn't it so I don't I don't know if we're going to give anything away and I don't want to preempt it by saying it but he's in a situation where he knows things can slip away from him very, very easily, and he's got a comfortable life. And I think that explains a lot of his anxieties and nervousness. I think it's yeah. very nice. It's very interesting to see his house in the film. It's a proper middle class house yeah, yeah. in a comfortable looking suburb of London, uh, or atop a hill, really, isn't it? Mm. And you would normally see these type of films, and they're usually either in some sort of shag pad. Yeah, or they're on a council estate, and yes. this is showing it. This is again, it, it's it's calling back to that sort of seventies idea of uh, career criminals in the sense that mm. they do it for work. It's a job of work, you know. Um, yeah, it, it's it could be six months of planning, five minutes of shit your pants terror, and then another six months of living off the profits before you start all over again. Um, which you know you you're only. <sighs> It's it's an interesting setup and a cycle, but he's making sure that he's got enough money behind him to live comfortably, to give his daughter a good life, and then it all slightly goes awry for him, really, and that gets him so nervous and agitated. Which goes back again to the point that you were making about the different generations of criminals that people like Dave and like Ray of in this job so they can retire early and leave a nice nest egg to their kids. Whereas yeah. for someone like Jason, there isn't really that end game in sight. The purpose is just to get more. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Um, because Alban's just starting out, isn't he? He's, he's yeah. a young man. I, I think sort of suggested it's probably his first job, isn't it? And yeah. he's certainly wide eyed enough to not understand uh, protocol 
what the rules are of the game kind of thing. You know, he, he does feel like he's sort of treading on people's toes, um, mm. especially Julian Phil Davis, who does not appreciate being having his toes tread on at all. Not at all. No, no. <laughs> It's funny this because I, I hadn't seen this before we reviewed it. I know you have seen it a number oh, of times, countless times. I mean, uh, this is not going to be great of a, a sort of a podcast episode because I love this film that much. I've got to be honest. I've watched it. I watched it pretty much as soon as it came out, and I've watched it many times since. It's just one of my favourites, really. So, the, the, if we're looking at critiquing it and picking plot holes apart, I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> Well, it's funny that I hadn't watched it because when this came out, I was a massive Blur fan. And I think that self-titled album is probably my favourite Blur album for sentimental reasons. Like, sometimes I think 13's a bit better. Sometimes I think Modern Life is Rubbish is a bit better. But I, I think Blur is always the top for me because it came out when I was most obsessed with Blur. Right, um, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I didn't see this until until it came out. And when it started, until we did this episode, sorry. Uh, and when it started, I remember having a bit of unease, like thinking, I trust Antonia Bird and I trust Ronan Bennett, who we should talk about in a bit. Yes, definitely we should talk about, yeah, yeah. Um, but I know they're doing this because it's a genre exercise and they've got it made. The question is, what type of genre exercise is it? And there are a few bits in in the opening, like 20 minutes or so, where there are some slightly too obvious Goodfellas lifts, you know, the, the banging in the back of the boot, going over to the parents. I think what won me over is how tonally weird a film it is. You know, most British gangster movies, particularly the ones made around this time, you can classify very, very easily. There are the ones that are serious and gritty and that have a little inheritance from the British social realist tradition. And there are the ones that are sort of knockabout and outrageous and laddish and, you know, are, are obviously very influenced by Tarantino normally. And yeah. This veers back and forth between the two with a real confidence, I think. It does, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Tarantino because, again, as I say, you know, Reservoir Dogs, East End, this kind of thing. Mm. But the one thing I love about this is it handles dialogue in a way that doesn't feel like it's dialogue in a movie, like Tarantino's yeah. dialogue is. There's a great scene where they go to somebody's house and they're expecting it to kick off. Mm. And you've got um, Robert Carlyle's Ray and Phil Davis' Julian at the back in case somebody makes a run for it in the back through the back door mm. and they're both they're both carrying guns and what have you but they have this lovely little exchange about relationships mm. and it's not like it's not like a tarantino scene this is you know it, it it's got that kind of iconic vibe to it you know these are just two these are two people up to no good they're carrying guns but they're talking about relationships it's got that kind of skittish schizophrenic yeah. vibe to it but mm. it's genuine dialogue and it just rams home the point that these are people doing a job of work it's not yeah. it's it's not two actors pretending to be gangsters talking about the favorite episode of star trek or whatever you know yeah <laughs> you yeah. might get in tarantino or what what you call a burger in france you know it's not it's not that it's it's two people having a conversation who just mm. happen to be carrying guns waiting for something to happen yeah and I think a lot of the 
problems with that generation of uh, British gangster movies was that they were very influenced by Tarantino and they were also very influenced by the other big American director making gangster movies at that time, Scorsese, but without realising that, you know, in an American social context, certainly there is a big difference between the two, that Tarantino's gangsters are movie gangsters. You're not meant to take them very seriously, whereas Scorsese is obviously massively interested in gangsterism as a kind of anthropological social yeah. phenomenon. And the, the attempts to mix the two were often completely disastrous, and it makes the tonal turns of a film like Face look even more impressive. Yeah, it's very skillful the way it does it. It's incredibly skillful. Um, but yeah, it grafts so much onto what you would ex- what you would not expect from a gangster movie. Mm. And I think that's why it struggles perhaps to find an audience yeah. um, either at the time or even today. I mean, again, just going back to this Britpop book, I think um, Phil Davis does say something along those lines. I can just find it. This was an action-packed gangster movie. It was really unusual for a woman to get her hands on a gig like that. And Antonia did it proud. You know, she was very, very good, a great loss. Um, And he says, I think it deserves a bigger reputation. It sort of disappeared without trace. Mm. And I think that is quite true, really. It's a shame that it has, but I think there were people who were a bit sniffy of it at the time as well. Whether it was a, a sort of Britpop, had reached saturation point so the mm. idea of seeing somebody from that scene acting is something people might have rolled their eyes at it a little bit yeah um and also they may have expected with that casting for it to be a bit guy rich and a bit you know yeah jolly boys out in kind of uh gangster movie um but then they they, they, they sit they come in to watch it and it's it's got a huge uh, political weight behind it, which I think threw an awful lot of people as well, because mm. it does graft this wonderful political context onto it. Um, yeah, but I think still alienates people to this day watching it. Really, I mean, you look at some reviews on Letterboxd and that, and there are a few comments that go, "I don't know why it's what it's trying to say politically, or why it needs to be included." And it's like, well, you're kind of missing a huge point then if you're not sure what yeah. we're trying to say politically here. <laughs> well, that's a, that's one of the things, isn't it? And that's maybe part of why it didn't become a big hit on its initial release, because I think what Bird and Bennett have done here is create the last Thatcher's Britain movie, you know, the last film about that Thatcher and major era of conservatism before it becomes period drama exactly it, yeah it did yeah. very quickly just three years later you have billy elliott which deals with thatcherism as something which is very comfortably removed from how things are now yeah but, exactly um, it's like i said before it's the distillation of um of everything that was 1980s yeah um you look at these characters and you know to quote sleeve of mods the the tory tired the whole yeah. of London looks Tory tired, doesn't it? You know, it's, oh, very... yeah, it's, it's not a swinging London movie at all. No, and I think that's another way it's out of step with its times in an interesting way. Yeah, it's sort of like a grey, drizzly looking London, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and what it's got, it's still got, a, 
it's interesting because it's still got a political heart. London itself, I'm not just talking about the characters like mm. race, socialist, who obviously, you know, he's trying to move away from socialism because he, he, you know, he feels like it's that that just no chewed him up it. and spit yeah. him out. There's yeah. no hope for it. Uh, while his mum, Sue Johnson, is still fighting the cause. Mm. Uh, but London itself looks like it's in that same position as him because. And they're not they're not set dress these, I believe. I'm sure she says it on the on the audio commentary. There's no set dressing on it, but they step out the pub and there's tons of uh, socialist worker posters. Yes, sort of peeling and falling off the wall. They go to um, a council estate in the first scene, and there's an anti-Nazi league sort of poster. Yeah, plastered on the wall as well. Uh, they go past something, and it's a it's a Labour poster. Yeah. for the forthcoming election. Because, I mean, this was filmed in, like, winter 96, and by May 97, it was a completely different story. It's but funny, in- that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that you would expect when you watch a film shot in 1996 about the decline of British socialism, you would expect there to be quite a lot of discussion about the fact that there is an incoming Labour government who would purposely distance themselves from socialism. But it's not in here. And I think that is part of because what the film is trying to do is just take stock of that last two decades rather than talk about what might be coming what under might be on the horizon. Yeah. And it's yeah. also the cynic, the cynic in me also sort of might suggest that if you were to ask some, I don't know, I mean, if you probably to ask the people involved in the movie, they'd probably say the same thing. But if you were to ask the character of Ray, mm. what does he think about Tony Blair? He's not going to be very impressed. No, no. <laughs> so there is a sense of, yes, we've had a decade or more of absolute shite happen to us, mm. but there's this thing on the horizon. Um, but it's not optimistic. There's no sense of optimism. It's just recording a situation at that particular yeah. point in time. Yeah. The other thing that I think is sort of interestingly like, uh, elegiac, I guess, would be one way of putting it, is that this is the last British gangster film where you can, and they do, stage very sort of high-impact shootouts in the middle of a street and in the middle of a police station without it turning into complete fantasy, because probably while this was being filmed, or at least while it was being written, you have the handgun ban coming in yeah that's right yeah yeah that's true it's um yeah i think but even then people were saying oh, it's a bit fantastical isn't it you know shootouts yeah. in a police station but again if you do it in america nobody yeah. will bat an eyelid they just accept it you know so I, I always struggle with that kind of um inverse snobbery i suppose that a lot of british uh film critics or audiences naturally have about our own uh, homegrown productions that well, we can't mm. do that well why can't we do that no <laughs> i think people in this country are very used to judging a film as either being realistic and you judge it according to whether it looks and feels real or yeah. complete fantasy and you judge it by some other metric but there is like a whole area in between which in between seem yeah. to struggle yeah. with but it's a very interesting point you make i mean this was just before or roundabouts the time of the handgun ban yeah. from Dunblane. Um and it is that kind of it adds it adds a, it adds an increased um fraught tension to it as well, doesn't it? Yeah. With a bit where the police are on them 
and they sort of split up and uh, Ray Winston and Phil Davis's character are in the middle of an absolute gun battle on the mm. streets of London, whereas Robert Carlyle and Stephen Waddington go a different direction and they're in the middle of a school. And yeah. that's an interesting little moment, knowing yeah. what we know that happened, you know, because you think, oh, shit, you know, it's a school, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't play out that way, thank God, you know. Yeah, I think maybe that was too recent for them to incorporate into the yeah. script, but when David Cronenberg came over here to make Eastern Promises, I remember him saying that was one of the big things that they didn't want to do. They didn't want to have any guns because any serious organised criminal knows that if you're just wandering around London with a pistol in your pocket, as soon as you get stopped by the police, you've got no excuse for that whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. But it's such a different time as well because, I mean, the 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 uh, the actual flag itself that happens here mm. and then the police are pretty much on them as soon as i mean it, it's a it's a horrible botch getaway isn't it with the money flying all over the place <laughs> yes um, yeah <laughs> hilariously tragic <laughs> well that's what killed me about you were so talking about career criminals but phil davis as julian has a line that's something like uh, i'm in charge of the logistics which in this case <laughs> means you've got a big truck right a truck that can go through a wall and that's the it thing you attached to the front but yeah the funny thing was it was about five years later they had the millennium dome uh diamond robbery thing oh, and yeah. they did exactly the same thing and i often wonder did they watch face but who in the right mind again career criminals who in the right mind will watch face see <laughs> phil davis's logistics and go that'll work <laughs> it's just kind of strange isn't it but there was a, it, <laughs> it's a kind thing. of small moral panic around the time wasn't there about ram raiding which i guess yes. this is kind of tuned into yeah, yeah. It, it was the big thing, wasn't it, Ram Red in, mm. in the sort of 90s? The idea that you could just smash in. It is a proper smash and grab yeah. blag, really, isn't it? There's nothing technical. It's old school. It's very it's it's very white middle-aged anger, isn't it? We want yeah. money. How do we get it? Just smash in there. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. There's no there's no intelligence going on. It's bang in brute force out you get um but it's botched from the start and it's quite mm. interesting um it captures a point in time in the mid 90s that five years later the world changes with 9-11 and yeah. the idea that you could have an armed robbery in the middle of london the police are on your tail straight away but the police haven't got guns mm. I mean, it's just a load of wooden tops who turn up in jam jars, isn't it? And yeah. there's nothing, they're being shot at, and there's nothing they can do. Nowadays, you pick the phone up and you've got an armed response unit straight away because of the whole, the way the world changed within like five years, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's one of those subtle gradations, isn't it? Well, I'm comfortable saying that the shootouts in face are like a hair beyond what would happen in Britain at that time in reality. Yeah. But to do it after 9-11 would just be a joke. It's too far, too unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. There's a great line in the audio commentary, I remember, um, that's only a bird, when Phil, Dan uh, Phil Davis sorry, uh, is just marching up the street with this pump action shotgun, <laughs> just firing at the uh, the police car that comes towards him. And then suddenly it connects, the bonnet goes up, it's in flames, it drives and goes into a skip, I think, or something like that. Great but shot. as it's shooting down the hill with the 
car in flames, Antonio Bird says, I've always wanted to do that to a police car. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, she directs like someone who has always wanted to do that to a yeah. police car. Because yeah. on the night that I watched this, I also watched a film that I know you really uh, love very dearly. I watched Safe. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Another brilliant Antonio Bird film. Uh, screen one or screen two, I think it was. It was screenplay, I think. Oh, screenplay, yeah. That I was the strand yeah. that Alan Clark did road as part of. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would use. They used to be on BBC Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the one that used to open with? Yeah, screenplay used to open with little snatches of dialogue from something. I always want to say, yeah, Roger's yeah. a bastard or something like that. <laughs> 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 Being like a 10-year-old kid, being allowed to watch these incredible works of, of British television, to see the word Rogers a bastard flash up as it, as it goes on the credits, you think, oh, this is going to be a bit interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you could rub your hands at it. You know? That's something we'll be talking about in the playground tomorrow. <laughs> well, how did safe go down in the playground? Because I found it genuinely traumatic. It's a traumatic film, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm not yeah. sure we talked much about that one, to be honest. <laughs> but that's got, I mean, it's got a lot of crossovers to this film as well, isn't oh. it? It's a very similar London. Yeah. It's, um, it's a London that is, uh, it's homeless. There, uh, there's, there's homeless people on the streets. There's a, this Tory tired, you know, there's, the, there's yeah. that wrecked and dejected sort of atmosphere. But similar Carlisle and well. Stephen Waddington, they're both in it, yeah. Yeah, um, Christine Tramarco and uh, Andrew Tiernan as well, they mm. pop up in this too, they're in that. Uh, oh, no, no, tell a lie, Christine Tramarco, I think, is in Priest, which is Bird's Scream 1, so that right. was before that. But Andrew Tiernan's in Safe, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, in, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Robert Carlyle's brilliant in it. The hug my road. <laughs> he is terrifying in it. I mean, people think he's scary in Train Spotting, but they yeah. they really need to see Safe because yeah, yeah, as intimidating as Begbie is, he would not last five minutes against no, Bobby's character no. in Safe. He, I mean, he, he just had such a wonderful purple patch in the mid nineties, Carlyle. Just yeah. incredible work, and then. You can see the trajectory. The trajectory was going towards Hollywood, and you, you can't really fault him or forgive him for that. But when he does something like the character in Safe, and then he follows it up with the character in um, Train Spotting, plays Begbie, and he's in between all that. He's um, the serial killer, uh, traumatized by Hillsborough in Crackers, uh, the Cracker episode. To say, is it um, to be, to be a somebody. somebody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are incredibly intense scurry performances and then yeah. he gets a bond villain and it's mm. crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's nothing scurry about it at all it's a guy who can't feel pain oh that's scurry you know <laughs> but that's that's the thing isn't it someone like uh ray in face or someone like his character in safe is frightening uh, or intimidating in as much as you can recognise them as a three-dimensional person. I mean, Ray is not yeah. meant to be primarily scary, but if he comes at you with a gun, you're meant to think that he can use it, and you yeah, know yeah. that he's going to use it because you understand why he's desperate. You know, you yeah. understand why his back's against the wall. And big Hollywood action movies generally cannot provide that very convincingly. 
No. And the fact that this this is unafraid to, to, to explore a backstory regarding how he has become this person yeah. uh, is something that Hollywood doesn't do, really. Hollywood's idea of, uh, of gangsterism, whether it's correct or incorrect, is that these people, it's, 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 it's um, good fellas, isn't it? All my life I wanted yeah. to be a gangster. You yeah. Know, it, that is the whole motivational aspect as to why they're doing that 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 line of work if you want to call it a line of work mm. whereas this is a guy who like i say he'd rather be hung for a sheep than a lamb you know yeah i'm gonna hit you back where it hurts you've robbed everything from me you've called me the enemy within you've called me uh lefty scum all those kind of things so i'm just gonna hit you back harder yeah but he's, yeah. He, he's done it so well he's in a position now where he's losing he's becoming a man he never thought he would be and he's losing the uh the moral compass that he had inside himself, which you see in, in, in the opening sequence, which we should talk about as well, because it's got Jerry Condon. Well, this it. is, yeah, this is what I wanted to talk about, particularly in terms of Ronan Bennett, because although Antonia Bird was a very politically committed director and was always very eager to explore social issues in her work, even something like Mad Love, which is always talked about as the the sort of compromised one that the studios yeah. took away from him is still clearly an attempt to discuss mental illness in a yeah, film. Yeah. Um, but here, I think a lot of it is also coming from Ronan Bennett, the screenwriter. Definitely, definitely. Mm. Um, a fantastic um, writer uh, with a, a very interesting uh, personal backstory in the sense yeah. that he... Um, he was wrongly arrested and sent to prison, sent to Long Kesh in the 70s uh, for an, a really bad IRA robbery that involved the death of, a, of an RUC officer. Yeah. Um, which eventually, you know, his, his, his innocence was proven and he was released. But I think that's where he met Jerry Conlon, actually. I think he met him in Long Kesh. Oh, did he? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, but obviously he, he then as a result of that, you know, he was following stuff like the Guildford Four, uh, those horrible miscarriages of justice uh, yeah. because, he, you know, he'd, he'd experienced it himself. Yeah. I think he got arrested again after that as well, didn't he? I think he, once he got out of Long Cash, he came to, he came over here. I think he set up with somebody in Huddersfield and got arrested there again. Yes, yeah. He, uh, there was an illegal attempt to deport them made uh, which right. seems, as far as I can tell, to be based on nothing at all. They just sort of, I think it was the charge was something to do with bomb making, but there wasn't any evidence for it. It was just a sort of, what do we fit up an Irish guy with? Yeah. Well, the, the usual choice. British yeah. special branch reaction to any Irish person, they must be making a bomb somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I find it quite interesting to cast Jerry Conlon, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Guildford Ford, if, if you've seen the film In the Name of the Father, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, um, yeah. It's the Daniel Day-Lewis character. Uh, it, to cast Jerry Conlon in that scene and then to have him say, what station are you out of? Because they've turned up at his house uh, pretending to be police officers, haven't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. To, to basically just steal from a drug dealer, really, isn't it? Yeah. And they start saying, what station are you out of? And they're like, why do you want to make a complaint? And he says, no, I just don't, I don't know police officers who come on this heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Conlon. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's such a, 
if you know that person, then there's such a you this that's the that's the uh, the tone this film is going for straight away, isn't it? You know yeah. that this is a film that it's a straightforward thriller. Don't get me wrong, but it's got a lot of interesting political commentary going on, mm. uh, and almost tongue in cheek in that respect. But it's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about Ronan Bennett is that he, he probably could have had quite a nice living from just writing films about the Northern Irish Troubles, but he has consistently used the understanding of injustice and sectarianism that that upbringing taught him to write about many other conflicts, including the English Civil War in his novel yes. Havoc in its third year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, 9-11 in Antonia Bird's later film, The Hamburg Cell, which I think is really a, a great lost film. Fantastic movie. I mean, I don't know if they still do it now, but every year around September the 11th, the, the, the many stations would tend to put the same sort of films on like World Trade Center or United 93. Um, yeah. They never show the Hamburg cell. And it's, whether it's because we all think of it as an American thing, you know, it's an American tragedy. So we'll look at the American films yeah, uh, to commemorate the, the occasion. I don't know, but that is an incredible film that deserves more views. I remember it came out and it was very controversial because it was very early in the 9-11 uh, dramatisation cycle. It was made before yeah. United 93, which was the famous one where someone screamed too soon at the cinema when the trailer showed. And, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, that. so it, it probably, part of the reason why it got buried was that it was simply too early. But I remember at the time that when there was a one-off drama, a one-off feature-length drama on British television, they would put it out on DVD straight away. And I remember going to HMV every week and becoming more and more wound up that the only one-off drama that was on that year that I thought was really, really great wasn't being released and still, yeah. to the best of my knowledge, hasn't been it is on dvd yeah oh good is it i do have it um it's in the other room i do have it yeah uh but it is rare as hen's teeth yeah yeah um i don't i don't think i got it on any release in store i think i ended up getting it um i think i've bought it online some, yeah. somewhere along the line whether it was ebay or something like that i'm not sure but it is um and to my knowledge i don't think it's a foreign import Right. Um, I think it has got a British release. I'm not sure. Um, we shall double check that once recording finishes. <laughs> Definitely. What I can say for definite is that Ziad Jarrah's performance in the lead of the Hamburg Cell is just astonishing. And, yeah, you know, if the film hadn't been buried, he would have become a very big star off the back of that because he's incredible. Absolutely. It's it's one of those films that it's dealing with something we all know about, but it has such tension mm. and uh, a sort of procedural element to it yeah. um, that it just, you almost forget where the, where, you know, where the story is going because you're so yeah. wrapped up in the actual uh, key ingredients piece by bit, a piece by piece, I should say. So I suppose to, to bring this around full circle, this is maybe a reason why Antonia Burrs is not as well remembered as she should be, because there is 
there are a lot of people who love Ravenous. There are people who really love Ravenous. And I imagine that if you have watched Ravenous because you know you you saw the DVD and decided to pick it up and you thought that was good, I wonder what else this director has done. It's like, oh, only four films. But as good as Face, you know, as good as her other films are. Uh, they are just the the tiniest tip of an iceberg of material that includes a lot of television movies of the kind that are not normally celebrated now, I think, but are nevertheless yeah. very interesting work. Yeah, I mean, she cut her teeth in the same way that a, a lot of really good um, British directors did, which is on television. Mm. Um, but she had the, the huge... Um, gift of television at a time when it would point the finger at people and you know, it would say this is a problem in our society let's explore it um, and that sort of thing just doesn't get done anymore um, yeah. and I do wonder where how our British talents may be coming from now because those avenues are closed um, yeah and I think even when those films weren't great, it's like you look at some of the very early Alan Clark stuff like George's Room and you think all right, you know, it's not Elephant, but it took a young director, it taught him how to block a scene, it taught him how to work with actors, it taught him how to keep a story set in one room, moving along. And it's just such a wonderful crash course for these things. Yeah. And I think you've, you've, hit it, you've hit it there when you say, um, you know, it taught him how to work with actors. I think that's the, mm. the, the real strength of people uh, who who you know matured in that tradition in the sense that when they did come to make films uh of greater merit or greater budget or mm. whether it was just a feature film release uh, to the cinema like this one the acting is first rate because they know what actors can bring to it they know they, yeah. they know how to cast they know uh, the strengths of certain actors and it imbues a piece with such reality i mean even damon alban uh, you know he's not an actor mm. but there's a realism to that yeah. performance that um that stands him in good stead i mean i would i could not imagine any other star of Britpop mm. having an acting career or appearing in a film like this really yeah, I think part of the promise of Britpop is that it's pop, yes, but it's made by people who were too smart to be cheesy. And I think there was already a feeling that becoming a pop star, then making a big movie was definitely a cheesy thing that you didn't yeah. want to do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But the idea that he he can go, he can appear in a film, this one and only film, but we didn't know that at the time. Obviously, this could have been, like you say, this could have been another career for him to fall back on. Yeah. And he's in he's in scenes with Robert Carlyle, Ray Winston, yeah. Phil Davis, yeah. Stephen Waddington, and he's and he's holding his own against those people. Uh, it's it's to his credit, really, and I don't think it gets the credit he deserves for it. You know, mm. I think it's um, it's an in it 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 does what it does. You know, it's not. You, you wouldn't be blown away by it, but at the same time, you wouldn't say, oh, God, he was crap in that. He should stick to making records, you know. Yeah, There's none of that It's not attitude. something that embarrasses him, which I think no. everyone was... I think there was 
probably an expectation that it was going to embarrass him at the time, particularly since when this was announced, Blur would have still been in their like post-country house backlash stage. Yeah. So I'll tell you what it's not. I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the All Saints in Honest, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the maddest of that cycle of British gangster movies, isn't it? What a isn't bizarre film that is. Isn't it just? But, you know, I, I mean, I remember it's been a long time since I've seen that. They're not actors by any stretch of the imagination. No. Uh, and it is a very, very strange film, but not as bad as people who write it off would give it credit. You know, it's not as bad as you think it might be. Don't hold me to that because it's been a long time <laughs> since I've seen it. But I remember watching it thinking, yeah, they can't act. It's not particularly good, but it's not it's not an appalling movie. There are things in it that are quite interesting. I mean, I remember thinking it was pretty bad, but I will say this, it was far from the worst British gangster movie of that time. I think the fact that it had All God, Saints yeah. in just painted a massive target on its back that could usefully have been like deployed for something like rancid aluminium or... <gasps> rancid aluminium or rancid shite, as uh, I think most people <laughs> called it at the time. It's been a while since you've heard those two words put Rancid together. aluminium, yeah. yeah. Hell. But that was, a, again, weird casting choices, and I don't know if that was a Guy Ritchie kind of thing, but mm. once those films came out, they had to have stunt casting in them. So yeah, you've got a film yeah. like um, Circus is a, is a very <laughs> forgotten film now. But it's got Brian Conley playing the uh, the gangster in it. Eddie Izzard's a loan shark in it. Christopher Biggins is somebody that gets bumped off in it. And you know what? Before I Tiny Lister's in it as well. <laughs> before I did this, just to refresh my memory, Deceiver, I read Danny Lee's 2000 Sight and Sound article, Get Smarter, about Deceiver, British gangster films, which is, you know, I, I think, one of the great film polemics. It's one of the great works by a great critic who was just saw something and thought no hang on someone needs to call a halt to this yeah uh, and he mentions circus and he says something like you know, it, it's it's uh, ambition to provide a gritty portrayal of gang violence is stymied by the fact that there's a scene where brian Connolly tortures christopher biggins yeah bizarre you know <laughs> and i'm not <laughs> I just don't know what anybody was thinking at that point, you know, to do sort of like a, a, a sub-Tarantino movie with huge amounts of stunt, cast, stunt casting in Brighton. Well, I, I wonder if it's one of those things, because one of the things that people used to say about Tarantino in the 90s that has now fallen way, way down the list of things that are interesting or worthy of discussion about him was he used to say, oh, he can really revive someone's career. He takes all these old forgotten Hollywood stars. And you know, I, I wonder if part of it is an effort to bring that to a you mean somebody actually, you mean doesn't somebody actually, have a star system. Yeah, that doesn't somebody have sat in an office and went, hey, let's get Christopher Biggins back to the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if but somebody could... said that, please let me know who they are and I will go <laughs> shoot them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> me and Phil Davis are going around there with a pump action shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to briefly touch upon um, a guy in this who 
we haven't spoken about uh, Stephen Warrington, mm. who is on um, Instagram. Um, his Instagram profile is one of the best tonics ever because he just constantly takes the piss out of himself. It's brilliant. <laughs> but what a performance in this from him because it's yeah. a character that could really, really go wrong. It mm. could really backfire on anybody. He's the simpleton. He's a tough He's he's, Le- he's um, Lenny from Of Mice of Men, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. Guy. He he he's the first to throw his fists, just seemingly on a nod from Robert Carlyle to just beat the shit out of anybody who he thinks has crossed them. Yeah, but he's incredibly um, slow witted and possibly um, learning disabled. He's obsessed mm. with his science fiction books. And his X Files T-shirt and his Dalek T-shirts. Well, that, um, that's the that's the two generations we're talking about. How this shows different generations of British criminals. The fact that Ray Winston's got a Dalek T-shirt and Stephen Waddington's got an X Files T-shirt <laughs> is yet another demonstration <laughs> of this. But I just think, I just think, if that film was made in America. Hmm. You could imagine how horrific that character would have been portrayed. Oh, it would yeah, have had somebody yeah. with full on ticks and mm. um, Oscar, you know, eyeing up an Oscar potential. Proper simple jack stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could just see that that where that would have gone. And again, that to me, that's why, you know, it's a shame that people don't say, well, you know, you, you can't make a gangster movie in the way that Americans make gangster movies. Well, why not? You know, you know, we do, there are things we do that we can do yeah. significantly better in some respects, you know, um, certainly in terms of characterization like that. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave off, actually. That's a good summation for the whole thing. I think it's, it has its very Hollywoodish tropes, but it manages to integrate them into something that makes perfect sense as a British film by a director who generally tackled essentially British subject matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, anybody who's intrigued by Antonia Bird and might look at it and go, oh, it's only four films, please try and check out some of her, her work for television yeah. because they are incredible. And they might, you might get the odd one popping up on YouTube. It's always worth looking out for. There is, as I write this, uh, I can say with certainty that Safe is up on YouTube at the moment. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's definitely worth checking out because you never know when those things get taken down. Mm. So it's definitely worth checking out. This also, I think, is on BFI, I think. Yes, yeah, so it's on BFI, BFI player. It's on there. So again, that's because I remember reviewing this, I think, last year, and somebody said, I've been wanting to watch this for years. I said, well, it's on BFI, so, you know, do check it out. It's probably me. <laughs> it probably was me. And I started up a whole podcast just to have the pretext to do this. Well, as long as we don't do um, Honest with the All, with all Saints, then... <laughs> Tempted, I'm not going to lie. Because <laughs> you will just... Re- the whole thing would be, it'll be like Frost Nixon, won't it? What would happen is you'd ask me to do it, You'd play this scene where I've gone, it's not that bad a movie. And then you'd sit there and go, explain yourself, Conleth. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see me get sweaty top lipped and everything. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, full I, on Nixon. <laughs> I don't think the defence uh, that if the All Saints do it, it's not illegal. Will fly in court. <laughs> Worth a try. <laughs> Listen, if Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics does it, then it's not legal. <laughs> it should be, but it's not. <laughs> well, that's about all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, uh, why not give us a rating on your podcast provider of choice? Because that actually helps rather a lot. Uh, or you could donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where we have a lot of goodies, including bonus episodes of Pop Screen, some of which you yourself have appeared on, have you not, Mark? I'm behind a paywall. Most of my stuff is behind a paywall. This is, <laughs> you come for the money, really, don't you? <laughs> you're, you're very much like The Times. We give you a couple of paragraphs <laughs> and then just fade you out. And the Catlin Moran of uh, <laughs> Pop Screen. <laughs> But with less facial hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I'll leave that in. I don't know yeah, whether we... Will we get sued? Mm, I do like Catelyn Moran, has to be said, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yes. <laughs> Uh, until next time, listeners, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been extremely litigious. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll hopefully see you next week. Hopefully. Who knows? <laughs> In the meantime, I'll keep my nose clean. <laughs>